Welcome, Mark, to the Nikos Show. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah, Merry Christmas in nice cold Ukraine. I've put some logs in the fire. Whereabouts are you calling in from today? Well, I'm actually in Seattle. I'm, I'm uh, west of Seattle, out on the Olympic Peninsula. So uh, we've been getting a lot of snow and rain. So it's very cold here too. But uh, uh, I don't, I don't like to burn wood because it's such a mess to clean up. So <laughs> I wear a lot of heavy clothes. <laughs> what is that in your in your background? There is that your home microscopes or your working uh, environment? I'm sitting in my lab. Uh, these are the microscopes uh, and other equipment that we use to. Uh, collect the soft tissue. We we go to the digs. We dig in Montana. We dig in Utah and Oklahoma, Colorado, and uh, we bring those bones back uh, to the lab. Uh, we actually prep them at the site by putting them in a in a fixative, in a preservative, and so that way any soft tissues that are in the bones when we collect them out of the ground are pretty much instantly preserved. And then we transport that back to the lab and we decalcify those bones. We put it in a weak acid and it sort of falls apart. And what you're left with on the bottom of the Petri dish is a lot of bone uh, mineral and the soft tissues, the vessels, the veins, uh, the vein valves, uh, and nerves. We're finding nerves. Uh, and another really exciting uh, discovery is uh, the blood clots, which I'd like to talk about too today. But no, it's stunning. I mean, just about every bone from every dig has yielded soft tissue. We've been publishing this, uh, well, for 10 years now. We're, we're at our uh, our decade anniversary here. And, uh, of course, everybody knows the story about how, how we found the Triceratops horn in Montana. And uh, I actually have a piece of it here I can show if you want me to. But uh, sure. it was about 48 inches long. Let's see if I can grab this here. This is the base. So this is the base that's left over from the horn. You can see the vascular holes in the center there that's where all the vessels are and then all that's, the, that's all huge the that bone. horn oh yeah this this is eight pounds and it's just like one fourth or one fifth of the total horn i can't so, even relate to that except maybe in an elephant but then that's not as thick <laughs> and not as heavy yeah, and solid oh they were they're they're huge and they're common the place that we uh dug in glendive montana is right smack in the middle of the hell creek formation and uh these are common so we found this horn in, in 2012, brought it back to the lab. It had that famous stretchy tissue uh, video that I shot. Uh, that was the fibrillar bone. It was, it was bone in the process of being hardened into bone. But what happens is, is the bone cells that live inside your bone, uh, they make a sheet of collagen. When they're going to make new bone, they make a sheet of collagen like a carpet. And then they go lay down on the carpet. These cells do. And so you have all these cells in rows and columns. And then they bring in bone mineral and they, they literally cement themselves into the bone. So <laughs> we actually found this fibrillar sheet of, uh, of collagen before it was mineralized and I was able to, to stretch it. And that made the film is Genesis history. And of course, everybody's seen that now. But uh, we're also finding nerves which we can stretch. So it, it is uh, astounding. Uh, it's shocking really to me as a, as a professional microscopist and a person who is trained in soft tissue processing for microscopy, it's astounding to me that these tissues are undegraded and still available. Some of the nerves even have lipids in them, which are fats. And so, you know, how, how is a fat preserved uh, for, for 68, 90 million years? Or in the case of uh, some of the Permian specimens that we're finding, 290 million years old and they still have fat in them. Yeah. So, how is that possible, right? <laughs> so I want to cut, cut to the chase. I'm a big Jurassic Park fan, and um, there's a new Jurassic Park movie coming out by Steven Spielberg this year or the next. So how possible is it now to basically replicate uh, a dinosaur from this soft tissue, now that, given that it's not like... It's not but possible. It a... I, I mean, oh, the, the... no. <laughs> I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Hey, I'm a big <laughs> Jurassic Park fan too. I, I, in fact, before the first movie came out, my sons and I bought the soundtrack, and we we knew the soundtrack by heart by the time the movie played. So John Williams, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. So no, it's it's great theater. It's great fantasy. It's uh, it's great science shtick, but uh, it's impossible because. Uh, just, just the systems that are required to take a live embryo to full term. 
uh, are unavailable. So uh, we can't replicate uh, that. And there's not enough DNA. The DNA is so labile. It's so fragile. Uh, they published recently that it has a half-life of 521 years. So uh, that's nothing in the term of, terms of geologic scale. So uh, we are getting closer and closer to um, not we uh, Distri as a group, but scientists as a group are getting closer uh, to sequencing more and more uh, nuclear material. But uh, no, it's, it's incomplete. It's fragmented. Uh, it's extremely fragile. So, so it, it is possible then once you have the complete DNA sequence to clone a dinosaur? Well, I'm going to say no, but uh, we'll find out. But no, I that think would be so I think, exciting. I mean, I'm not really into be, all this cloning and stuff like that, but but dude, getting a real dinosaur on the go, man. Well, if you want to see a real dinosaur, in my opinion, just uh, uh, give your life to Jesus and you'll see one in heaven. I'm pretty sure. I think it's going to be Eden 2.0, and I think everything's going to be recreated. <laughs> actually, I had, and, I, thought, I had that. I had that thought actually. Yeah, you're. Um, you'll be able to see the dinosaurs compare it to. Uh, Steven Spielberg's interpretation, or whoever was yeah, the prop, no, prop I think so. <laughs> I, he says everything's going to be restored, and so um, uh, you know, you look you look at carnivory as a thing that's going on in our world today, and it's gone on ever since, probably since the curse. Uh, but animals eating each other and, and se seemingly perfectly designed to attack certain prey, and um, you know, it, it, all of that is going to go away because that's not a natural part of what God made in the beginning. It was perfect. It was without predation. And so, no, I, I think things are going to be so different. Uh, we just can't conceptualize it now because of the, the conditions that we've lived in here on this cursed earth. That's actually quite an interesting question because we believe that, in a sense, God created all animals vegetarian. But yet, I look at the my German, our German shepherd and it's got these crazy strong jaws and teeth and I yeah. felt those teeth in the, in the midst of playing a game so like these animals are, are in a sense designed to kill so there must have been some process when man sinned that these animals warped and changed physically but obviously yeah. it's not a, a scientific <clears throat> process it's a, it's a result of, of sin and sin is in a sense we have the spiritual realm and the physical realm is sort of subject to the spiritual realm as well uh, that's based based on observations of my my life that you know there's there's certain physical laws that we have you know causes causation and effect but also there's sort of spiritual laws above that and which control reality. Yeah, there's no there's no uh, there's no question that sin was a game changer and uh, it affected everything, um, especially our thinking and our our ability to reason. Our minds are so uh, uh, fallible uh, because of sin that we we entertain the, the weirdest and most wicked of thoughts. And it's amazing we get anything done at all as a people. But uh, no, I, I just I, I think that most people cannot relate to heaven uh, because they ha it hasn't been explained to them how uh, how decayed things are presently on this planet. A lot of millennials are running around today thinking, wow, the world's getting better and, and we can affect climate change and we can affect all these things on the earth uh, with our, uh, you know, abilities and technology and human engineering. But we haven't done a very good job so far. Everything's still going in the wrong direction. Uh, and it's predicted. I mean, Second Peter 3 uh, talks not only about the, the flood destruction, and it's evident. I mean, we, we're chasing these dinosaur remains all around the globe. And so it is global. Um, and But it goes on in Second Peter to talk about the coming judgment, which is by fire. And so how interesting that we find the climate may be heating. Uh, and people are pointing fingers at each other saying, you're doing that, you're doing it. No, maybe God's doing it. Uh, maybe the end times are sooner than people want to believe. Um, and I believe that's why God is allowing us to discover and publish, for example, we got a cover journal on our latest work on nerves found in Triceratops condyle. This is a bone out of a Triceratops that we collected in Montana. We compared it to a chicken bone nerve, and it matches what we collected out of the dinosaur. So the, the, the scientific community is recognizing that this is valuable information. And I think uh, the Lord is allowing this to come out now because we are getting close to the end times. And people need to make a decision for Christ now while they have time. 
Um, you know, he's the creator. He's the one that designed us. He's the one that made us. He knew, he knows what makes us tick, what makes us happy. He knows what makes us sad. And uh, that's why we have the Ten Commandments. They're not suggestions. Uh, they're commandments to obey and follow because we are uh, owned by the creator. He made us. He owns us. And he's going to redeem us if we search for him, if we reach out to him. Yeah. And that's all you have to do. It's not about being uh, holier than other people. <laughs> it's about walking with Jesus and just talking to him every day and just having a lifestyle that reflects what he wants you to live. So, yeah, it, I believe all of this is coming to the, to the forefront now because I believe that some judgment is about to really come down on us. So I just want to unpack a little bit for my atheist friends and uh, agnostics that are watching this, this podcast. So when he's when we're talking about the Ten Commandments, we're not talking about something that's a killjoy. If we can sort of re relate the Ten Commandments to rules for maintaining your car, for instance. So yeah. there's certain commands you need to do to maintain your car or the car right. will fall apart. So, for example, you need to replace the brake pads. You need to put oil in there. You need to not put diesel in a petrol engine. That could be a right. commandment. So these com commandments for the car are not for the car's destruction or, or boredom. They're to protect the car from basically not following the laws of mechanics. So yes. same, in the same things, the commandments of God have a direct effect on our lives, our spirits, souls, and bodies. So that really is why God has the right to have commandments for our lives. He does have the right because he's creator. Um, you know, all you have to do is is look at the design in your own body and you can see that it's, it's impossible for all the systems, all the organ systems, uh, all the chemical systems in your body to come about by chance. I mean, the mere fact that I'm speaking into a microphone, that's being uh, turned into sound waves that are impacting your tympanic membrane and causing an electrical signal that you then turn into meaning. Where does that come from? Okay, uh, that didn't. We didn't crawl out of the dirt and figure out how to do that ourselves. We were created with incredible systems from the very beginning, and we're devolving. In fact, the number of genetic mutations in the human race, uh, and there's one race, folks. There's one race. Okay, there's not races. Uh, this whole thing about racism, that's from the pit of hell. Everybody you see is a, a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve, and you were related to them through that connection. But God made us complete, perfect, and wonderful from the beginning. But the genetic load on the human race is increasing exponentially, which means we don't have much time, even as a biological system, to stay operational. Do you think that could be related to the certain... Well, wait a minute. So we're having greater life expectancies, but would there be diseases like for example cancers that would be a result of dna degradation or are we do we have any idea what those malfunctions are for want of a better word very much so there, there's a book out called genetic entropy uh by dr john stanford of uh cornell university uh and he explains in great detail how many of the genetic diseases that we're facing today are because of the genetic load the mutation load uh wow. on our systems and so the mutations That's are increasing. Crazy. Yeah, it's really scary. Uh, but it, it it gives you pause when you think about these grand programs that, that we're trying to enact, to, uh, you know, to bring peace and prosperity to the whole world. Um, I think we're really, we really should focus more at making sure that people are solid with Christ uh, as they move forward, because it's God who supplies our needs. Um you know, he's given us abilities to go out and work and earn money and, and have careers and do fantastic things. But he is the one that supplies. If, if we look to ourselves only as the measure of our success, we're going to we're going to fail. He says, be still and know that I am God. And so God's not your enemy. He's your friend. He's really looking out for you. He wants you to live a happy, free, healthy, healthy life, uh, not just here, but in the hereafter. And so, you know, in your heart that you're an eternal being. Nobody has to tell you that. You already know that. You're probably dodging that in some ways, lying to yourself about it. But uh, I would suggest that you just open a dialogue with, with the Lord. Just say, hey, uh, it's me. Hi, uh, I'm having trouble with this or that. And just start talking. Start the conversation. That's how I started. <laughs> Amen. That's how I started. <laughs> so... 
So I'm, I'm just looking at this book by called Genetic Entropy by John Sanford. Is he a, what's his worldview? Uh, he's a believer. Uh, he was okay. uh, he's professor emeritus at Cornell University. Uh, he actually invented the gene gun. I don't know if you've ever heard of the gene gun. No, I'm just a, googling it now. Yeah, yeah. It was is a way, and it's used routinely now in science. It's a way of injecting genes uh, into plants and other organisms that uh, may not have those genes. So he invented that technology, and so he's he's world renowned science, but. Uh, no, he's he's done the research and shown that the genetic load is is really frighteningly. Uh, that, fi- that flies in the face of evolution, though. Oh yes, everything does. I mean, we're not evolving; we're not getting better. Uh, we're getting worse. <laughs> so I'm just so curious: is this a university lab you're in right now? Uh, no, this is a private building. That well, we're a 501c3. We're a, a private uh, right. organization. So this is a, a structure that we have. A building with uh, with a lab in it and a, and a big garage so, for. So well. I've I've done some time in a biophysics laboratory looking at neurons under a microscope and mm-hmm. doing some art- actually programming for for uh, image analysis. So those microscopes are very expensive. Lenses can cost two or three thousand each per oh, lens. More than that. Yeah. yeah. And um, so I mean I, I haven't I haven't really been in the games for, for, since about twelve years ago when I graduated. So. But I mean, the technology just continuing, continually evolving, and in, in the speed that you can, the kind of pictures you can take of these processes in cell there, it's amazing, really. But you have to kind of look look at it with your own eyes to, to it, sort of what I'm talking about. It's fascinating. You know, you're right. The 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 amount of information that is now being extracted from cells, and not just cells, but but now they're they're doing this technology where they they are working with complete organs, and so. Uh, they'll use animal models uh, and they will anesthetize them and put them to sleep and remove their organs. But they do this thing called clearing where the organ itself, instead of looking like a cloudy piece of meat, it turns clear. It becomes completely clear. So you're holding now a heart that is clear or a liver that is clear. Uh, but they keep the tissue alive. And so you can then put it under the microscope and do experiments with it and look at different cellular processes uh, going on in real time. So, no, the, 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 the amount of information that's being gathered about uh, organ systems and uh, physiology is, is fascinating. But you're right, it's very expensive. Um, you know, we, we just spent, uh, I think, $22,000 the other day on some instrumentation. So this is what you have to do if you want to be in this game, if you want to uh, examine these tissues. You have to have the kind of equipment that are used in million dollar laboratories. And I, I've run laboratories like that. I think I've installed seven different uh, electron microscope laboratories in my career. So I've been in microscopy a long time and, and that's the advantage for me is that I know where to find great equipment at a good price. <laughs> but no, it's a very expensive game and uh, to publish in this arena, you have to have the equipment that allows you to get the images that people want to see. Have you been contacted by any of the people involved in the Jurassic Park movies? No, no one from the uh, no one from Hollywood has contacted me yet. Although uh, you are, are the some... guy, the, you are the guy that can make it happen, right? <laughs> Why not? You, know, you need to get Steven Spielberg on, on your phone to use. <laughs> well, I need to send him more birthday cards, I guess. Maybe then he'll notice me. But uh, no, we're that's what the, this is not about. That okay? This is not about me. It's not about even the Dinosaur Soft Tissue Research Institute. Uh, this is about the work, and it's about what we're finding. Uh, that's why we give it away for free, because we don't want money to be an object uh, for people's understanding that the Earth is young. I mean, these these tissues cannot be there. These lipids, which we're finding in Permian uh, limb bones, cannot be there if they're uh, multi-million years old. And we just we just dug in Oklahoma uh, a few a few months ago and we collected dimetrodon. This is a piece of a dimetrodon femur. And we thin section these things. Here's a a thin section of a tooth. That's a dimetrodon tooth. And we look for blood. What's, that? What's a dimetrodon? Dimetrodon is that 290 million year old reptile with a big sail back on it. Um, was it. Was it on Jurassic Park? That's my level of dinosaur knowledge. No, it's much, <laughs> much late, much uh, older. Uh, Jurassic is, uh, is 68, 70, uh, 75 million years, something like that. Uh, but Permian, this is 230 to 295 million years old. And we went to Oklahoma, which is the world capital for Permian uh, 
specimens and they're sitting right on the surface. Uh, we collected them right off the surface. And so we thin section these things. And the reason, because these are, these are permineralized. This one is permineralized. Most of the bones we collect, for example, this uh, nanotyrannus rib, this is not permineralized. So we're extracting tissues out of these because the tissues... What's permineralized? Permineralized means that uh, water, uh, supersaturated water with salts in it infiltrated the bone and ex exchanged all the biological molecules in there for rock. So this is, that's, that's a hard solid rock now, okay? But the clots that are in it, uh, the blood clots, we find when we thin section, you see those dark areas, that's all clotted blood in there. What does that I can't mean? Really see it. I can't really see it through the web webcam, but I hope that it turns mm. okay on the other end once we uh, upload it. But if not, we've got some Well, you can see content. the light in the dark. That's what's important. You can see the light right, in the okay. dark. The dark is blood clots. And, and why is that significant? When you drown, if you're a, a drowning victim and you die in that condition, your blood clots throughout your entire body. And it stays that way. Now, when you die, of course, your soft tissues all fall apart, all fall away. But the bones uh, stay intact, and they're full of blood clots. And we published this. We, we, we looked at the bones of six different individuals, and we found these blood clots because we used a special microscope that makes the iron glow. And so that here are the blood clots in the blood canals inside the bone. Remember, this is a thin section bone. And we put it under a UV microscope, and that's all the iron. All the iron from the blood stayed in the canals, uh, which is an indication that these organisms drown. Now, if you drown and you're brought back to life, you're resuscitated in the ER, your blood clotting cascade, which is a one-way reaction, starts going the other way. And so instead of clotting, now you're bleeding out. And so they're trying to keep you alive post almost drowning because your blood is pouring out of your body. So... This is a well-known condition. It's in the scientific literature. And uh, we've now found clots in Dimetrodon. So it means that these organisms that are supposedly 290 million years old probably died in the same event that all the dinosaurs died in from the Cretaceous. Wow. I'm just going to have to try and go back to some of the, the points you raised. So, so basically, you're talking to somebody who's been brought up in the public school system. Yes. Who all his life has... <laughs> basically been taught that dinosaur bones died millions of years ago and all that stuff. So I think I first heard about your work uh, mid-2005 or something like that, some, sometime, some then, sometime then. Um, but then you, when I was first talking to you, we started talking, you were talking about all these like continual soft tissues that you're finding and all this kind of stuff that you're saying. So it's like, Tidal flow information, like th this isn't just a single occurrence. This is like a multiple occurrence we're seeing then. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, when I started reading about this work back in 2010, uh, I had I had done a paper before uh, in 2000, I guess it was 2002 or three or four, something like that where I took a T-Rex femur and uh, decalcified. Actually, I just, I cracked it open, actually. I just physically cracked it open, coated it uh, with metal, and put it in the electron microscope, and we saw all these collagen fibers. So I knew right there, wow, there's a lot of collagen in this T-Rex bone, which shouldn't be there. Uh, but it wasn't until I started reading the technical literature around 2007, I started reading Dr. Schweitzer's work and Dr. Pauliki who is in Poland, and I was stunned because the papers were describing work that I was trained in. In other words, I was trained to be a soft tissue expert to process tissues for microscopy. I've even processed jellyfish eyes, okay? I, I know most people don't realize jellyfish have eyes, but they do. They're mostly water. They're like 90% water. But I was, a, I was able to collect those eyes and process them for microscopy, which is really hard to do. So I have a lot of experience and I had a lot of publications prior to my interest in this dinosaur soft tissue. But it, it shocked me to read the literature and I realized, wow, I can do this myself. Then when I went to the dig and found this horn, which was completely fractured, full of plant roots, it was wet, it was muddy, uh, uh, there were fungal mats, big white fungal mats growing throughout I thought there's not going to be anything in here, but the most beautiful soft tissue that 
uh, I think has been published was found in that horn. So that led me to make the prediction in 2012 that this is the norm and not the exception. And of course, we've been on eight digs now since then, and every dig has confirmed that. So this is common. It is the norm. Uh, we're literally walking on a cellophane-wrapped earth of soft tissue. It's a boneyard. It's a graveyard, uh, which is the remnants of the global flood that covered the entire earth because it's all sedimentary. And if they're all clotted, they all drowned. And if there's soft tissue in all of them, it happened a short time ago. So it's really not hard to explain this in about two sentences. So what about all the millions of, or the, not the millions, the other 100,000 paleontologists who are digging up tissues with non-soft tissue, bones of non-soft tissue? Are they all lying or, or what? No, I think they're just, they're ignorant. And I look, you, you practice what you've been taught, okay? You go through a, you go through a degree program Let's say you get a master's, you practice what you're taught. You do the work that they tell you to do. If you want to get your degree, you have to pony up. Uh, doctorate's a little different because you do it's more of a research degree, so you're actually doing research, but you're basically parroting the research that's been done before. I saw a fascinating video yesterday, and I'm sorry I'm having a senior moment. I can't remember the name of the scientist, but... Uh, it'll come to me. Gunther Beckley, I, I think you pronounce it. He's uh, in Germany. And he made the statement that the fossil record uh, is thoroughly known now. We know enough about the fossil record to be able to say, okay, we're finding the same thing over and over and over and over again, so there's nothing new to be found in the fossil record. Now, this has to do with transitional forms. I mean, he made it clear that all of these transitional forms that people hope are there are not there. They haven't been found. And so we know enough now about the fossil record to say conclusively, we're kind of done. We're kind of done as far as finding trends in the fossil record. The, the current trend in my mind is finding the soft tissue, but this is anathema to folks that as part of their degree program, as part of their professional life, accept deep time without question. They don't question it. So they never look at it. But so, if so if, if, even if I was trained and did a PhD and whatever, and I pick up this bone and look inside it, if the tissue is soft, it's soft. If it's not soft, it's not soft. But so I understand even if you do have a training, then you can stick your finger in that bone and feel the soft tissue. So, so why is it possible that they would say it's not soft tissue? <laughs> well, it wrecks their little paradigm. Everybody knows if you take a, uh, a chicken sandwich uh, and you put it out on the back lawn and put a little white fence around it and a sign that says scientific experiment, do not disturb, and just watch how long that chicken sandwich stays there. We know intuitively that's not going to last. It'll be gone in a month or less. Uh, heck, the neighbor's dog will probably come eat it before it, you know, any of the bugs get to it, right? So we know this. We know intuitively that soft tissues don't last. Uh, we've all had or seen fish aquariums, and you see what happens when a fish dies. Okay, they mostly float to the surface anyway, so uh, they don't they don't die and crawl down in the sediment. <laughs> okay, this is really something that I have to see with my own eyes. I mean, I believe you, but because I know you, you, you what have you got to gain from from lying, from making this up, right? So. I can accept it mentally, but it's something I actually have to see for myself, you know, because I've been to the I've been to the museums, I've looked at the old skeletons or young skeletons. So yeah, I, I want I want to see this from my own eyes, man. No, you're you're look, you're normal, okay? You're like everybody else. Uh and, and so this is one reason why we just invented in 20 student microscopes and we're taking these labs out on the road. Uh we want uh, interested high school students who want a career in science or microscopy or even paleontology to come on a dig with us, collect your bones, bring those uh, bones into the lab. Let's decalcify them. When we were in Pennsylvania, <laughs> we had we had students finding nerves within about 30 seconds of showing them uh, how to recognize the nerves. And, and one, I guess she was 16-year-old, one 16-year-old student kept saying, Found another one, found another one every every two minutes. 
And finally, I got to the point where I said, of course you did, because number one, it's prevalent. And number two, she learned easily how to find these things for herself. So if a 16-year-old girl can do it, uh, a 57-year-old a PhD can do it, but you've got to be willing. You've got to be willing to, to really open your mind to this. And there are folks who just adamantly will not even discuss this or they'll call me names. But hey, prove me wrong, okay? I'm publishing in the scientific literature. Uh, go to the digs, find your own bones, decalcify them. I told you how to do it in here and prove me wrong. But so far, nobody's been able to do that. And like I say, every dig, every bone has yielded soft tissue so far. I have so many questions, man, being trained, a trained scientist myself. So let me just, so who can go on a dig? Can I just go out to the field here and start digging up, looking for dinosaurs? Or does it have to be a certain part of the world based on the, I guess, the flood ties, deposits of dead animals? Well, actually, what we do is we go to uh, the digs, if we can get into them, we go to the digs that are already in the literature. So we study the literature, we look at the, at the sites uh, where these remains have been taken out of. And uh, we try to get access to that site. Why? Because we're digging in a in an area that's well established in the literature. So we don't have to do all that description. That's already been done. Everybody knows about it. It's world famous. So when we pull the bones out of it and pull the tissues out of them, it really gets their attention. Because we're not digging somewhere where nobody knows uh, you know, where you are. Uh-uh. We're going to their sites. Okay, we're going to the sites that they've dug at and they've made famous and they've put in the literature. And uh, that's where we're pulling the tissues out of. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, I'm a scientist because I was interested in this discovery, but, you know, I was, in a sense, tempted to go to London and work as a, in, in finance. Can I, can I regret that a little bit? I should have, I should have done a PhD in... Anyway, I, I can digress. So, but so scientists are interested in discovery. So, if somebody like yourself is basically saying we found soft dinosaur tissue, it would make sense to me that you would have loads of other dinosaur mainstream scientists coming your way to to sort of learn from you. But from what it seems to me is that you basically got fired and uh, from a university. And I'm not really sure how your careers panned out then, but obviously you're getting published on a scientific journal, so that would basically, whenever you pop, just for the audience, when the reputation of the journal is very important. So they have these editors and they're very, very obsessed about the reputation. So the fact that he's getting published documents shows that people are listening. So that's that's good. I, I mean, I thought he was just basically away in, a, in a, his lab and nobody went to listen to him. So this is quite exciting and we could see some, some clashes happening here. So I think I threw a lot of questions out there, but hopefully you can <laughs> return something yeah. from that. <laughs> No, exactly. It is so rewarding. It is just so rewarding. Not not only be able to get our work published, recognized, peer-reviewed, uh, but for them to give us a cover. Uh, and this is not the first cover. Uh, the American Laboratory, uh, of course, I didn't. I don't think I have it in front of me, but um, American Laboratory published on the cover the first thin section that I made of that stretchy tissue that I peeled away from the bone. That's crazy. That, that's an amazing. When, when was that published? That was 2012, December of 2012. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. All of this is on our website. Uh, uh, you can, you can download actually the papers, uh, a lot of the images. There's quite a few videos at dstri.org. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel, uh, Mark H Armitage. Uh, we put a lot of stuff up there, but no, uh, the reason the reason that uh, soft tissue is not discussed at length in the paleontology journals is because it flies in the face of everything they've published over the last 150 years. Uh, it can't be there. Scientists know that these bones are so old, they're so dry, they're, they're crumbling, they're turning to dust. So how can there be, they wouldn't even go look for it because they knew it wasn't there. It's the same thing, you know, the, the, uh, the Creation Research Society, or I think, it, I don't know if it was the CRS, but it was... One of the one of the creation groups uh, studied diamonds uh, and looked for carbon fourteen in them. Now this is this is a stupid from from, from an evolutionary point of view. This is a stupid waste of money to do an experiment. Why would you waste time going to look for carbon fourteen in a diamond that we know is over a billion years old when carbon fourteen goes away completely in about fifty thousand years? But guess what? We found carbon fourteen in diamonds, and so this this is the problem. Science is, is, is about 
asking the questions that you're not afraid of the answers of. And a lot of people are afraid of the answers they're getting when they look into these things because it, it, it puts their career at risk. Now, you mentioned my job uh, firing. It was fascinating because uh, uh, I was actually editing papers for the editor of the journal Acta Histochemica uh, that were being sent to him for publication. Yeah, I was I was editing, I was reviewing and editing microscopy papers, and the editor kept saying, "Mark, you're doing such a great job. Why don't you give me a paper?" <laughs> he kept asking me, and so I said, "Okay, I'm going to give you a paper, <laughs> and we'll see what happens." So I gave him the Triceratops horn paper, and uh, about a week went by, and uh, he was in my department, so he called me on the phone from his lab and said, uh, Mark, uh, this is controversial. And I said, yeah, it's controversial. And he goes, okay, thanks, and he hung up. And then the paper was published. And so, uh, and once Oh, was, nice one. Yeah, it was fantastic. And then uh, the department uh, wrote, wrote, wrote it up in our departmental newsletter. They, they bragged about the paper, and then they bragged about the picture on the cover of American Laboratory of the stretchy tissue that I sliced with a steel knife. I mean, it's that yeah. soft, I could cut it with a steel knife. That went on for about a week or so <laughs> until they figured out what it really meant. <laughs> and uh, I didn't make any uh, conclusions in the paper other than this is amazing. These tissues cannot and should not be there and we need to study this more carefully. That was my conclusion. but. They Very wise. That's how you play the game. You don't get emotional yeah. like myself yeah. on LinkedIn. Yeah. Getting yeah, you have to be dispassionate <laughs> if you want to publish these things, and that's what I did. Yeah. Simply publish the facts, and uh, and yeah, they terminated me a week after the paper was published. Uh, so who terminated you precisely? The uh, the uh, the head uh, the the dean the dean of the College of Science and Mathematics. Uh, who we later discovered during the lawsuit had been verbally abusing Christians and creationists in his office uh, in front of, in front of whole groups of people. I mean, all this came out and he was disciplined, but it was all kept hush hush. But we discovered all this when we did discovery in the lawsuit uh, for wrongful termination. And, and the, they did settle. They, they did settle out of court. Uh, it, it took a, a, a quite a bit of uh, a pressure upon them, but we were ready. We we had hired some attorneys that had just beat their attorneys in court. We hired them. We said we'll see them Monday in court, and that weekend they settled. So I guess uh, I guess so this is a short a, process. This yeah, it, it was uh, uh, it, it was a difficult process. It took three years, and it cost the wow. university over a million and a half dollars. What? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, but it's a million dollars to your to 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 yourself or to no 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 no, no that was the lawyer the lawyers got all that uh, um, right you know, I got I got enough to basically cover my retirement so I, I basically right, okay. saved my retirement congratulations mm -hmm, yeah thank you uh, and that's what allowed me has allowed me uh, to to do more and more of this work and like I say we've we've uh, we've gotten you know so many cool publications and there's more. In fact, the, the Dimetrodon clot paper, uh, we found the clots in the Dimetrodon, that's going to be published in January. So uh, that's going to be a real uh, barn burner because we're talking about clots in organisms that should have decayed hundreds and hundreds of millions of years ago. I mean, we're talking about a time in Earth history where uh, Oklahoma was 8,000 miles away on the one continent called Pangaea. Okay, this is what's in their minds that, that the continents were all in one place and they split apart and traveled 8,000 miles. And yet the bones that we're finding have no score marks on them. There's no scratches. So this bone traveled 8,000 miles since it was buried and has no scratches on it. No, I don't think so. So, uh, no, as long as we have the ability to go into these digs that are world famous, to collect our own specimens, process them and publish them. Uh, we're going to continue to do it, and we hope to go, like I say, all around the world and dig this up in on different continents. So what does your discoveries do to the religion of atheism? Well, you know, I don't care about atheism. I mean, there, in my mind, there's no true atheist because 
true atheist is completely dispassionate. They don't care about anything. They're nihilists. So, <laughs> but most of the well, I meant to say atheists, the religion, the religion of the religion of evolution. <laughs> but I guess they're linked together. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, well, and here's the other thing. I don't really care about the evolutionists. And, and, you know, I tell people, if you're arguing with an evolutionist, stop it. Stop it. Don't stop arguing. We weren't left here on this earth to argue with people. Just read the Sermon on the Mount for crying out loud and look at how the Lord gave to people. He was, you know, he talks about being poor in spirit, uh, merciful, uh, all of these qualities that are not being displayed by even a lot of Christians today. So I would say stop arguing. Uh, you've got nothing to argue about because, I mean, this is the nail in the coffin. Dinosaur nerves cannot be there. Uh, and like I say, we're finding them in Permian, 290 million year old bones, and they're better preservation. Just look at the videos on our website. You'll see the nerves from Permian have better preservation than the nerves from the Jurassic. So yeah, I don't know why, but it's not about me. It's not about evolution. It's really not even about religion. It's about the fact that there was a global flood. It destroyed everything on earth. Uh, it's undeniable now. It was recent because there's even lipids in it. And a second judgment is coming. And are you ready? That's the only question worth asking. Are you ready for real reality, which is the Lord Jesus coming back to earth and everything's going to burn up, everything's going to end, and we're going to be separated into sheep and goats? I want everybody to be sheep. That is the sheep and the goats passage is the most scary verses in all of the Bible to me. This is yeah. terrifying, you know. It's terrifying. More scary and, the... and you know, you, you people think, oh, you know, I have to become Christian. I'm gonna, I won't have fun anymore. My life is gonna be boring. Let me tell you something. My life has never been more sane, more normal, more peaceful, more productive, and frankly, more relaxing since I turned my life over to Christ. I don't have to worry about a lot of things now. Uh, I still have to be diligent. I have to do my due diligence. I have to be, uh, you know, a good citizen, uh, a good member of the country, a good member of my community, get along with people, love people, don't create problems. But no, I mean, I have a wonderful life now and I have the promise of an eternity of, of just tremendous joy and peace. What age were you when you found Jesus? I was uh, 20, 21. And you says that your life is more relaxing now, yeah, can you just expand on that a little bit? Oh, yeah. Before I was a Christian, I was the best non-Christian I could be. I mean, I I was one of those long-haired, dope-smoking, maggot-infested hippie types that people would cross the street to get away from. And I had a, I had a, my heart was black. I had hatred for people. I had anger. I had so much anger, unresolved anger that I didn't understand uh, and that I couldn't let go of. Um, I had habits that, for example, I was smoking two packs a day. And the day, the day I got baptized, I quit smoking that day. And that was 1977. I haven't smoked since. And I was addicted. I loved it. Uh, I was a heavy drinker. I was a heavy drug user. The only drug I never used was heroin, but I used just about everything else. And so I came to the point in my life where I realized I have no peace. I have no sanity. My life is chaotic. I don't know what's happening from the one day to the next or one week to the next. I have no plan for the future. I have no hope for the future. Uh, and and I, I finally realized, I said to myself, Mark, you are empty. And that's when I finally realized I got to start reaching out. And I did. I just started talking to Christ. I, you know, Lord, hi. You know, it's Mark. I'm in trouble. I need you. Can you help me? And then everything started falling into place. Uh, I had to work at my Christian life. If you know, it's like your marriage. If you want your marriage to be good, you can't just lay around and let it do its own thing. You got to work at it, right? You got to show your wife that you love her, that you're a servant, that you're a protector, that her feelings are really important to you. Her thoughts, you know, her contributions are really important. You have to build that relationship. It's the same way in a relationship with the Lord. You you got to walk with Him. You got to learn. You learn a lot about yourself. And you learn a lot about him. And uh, and you get a hope and a peace that it says that you get peace that passes understanding. That's true. That's absolutely true. 
So do you feel like the Lord wants you to keep doing this research? Does he have like a, can you share a plan that he has for you with this research coming up? Uh, if well, you're allowed, the only... I mean, I understand that we've... <laughs> Uh, the plan, I mean, the plan it's the things is... that you can't say. God can obviously <laughs> tell you not to share things, which is a scriptural thing. When you know God will tell you, say say something to somebody, and you say don't tell anybody. So and I understand <laughs> that. So I appreciate. Yeah, there's there's some secrets that we're keeping because we're finding some things that are literally so shocking that if we reveal them now, we feel that other uh, laboratories will scoop us on it, and we don't want to be scooped. But. Uh, no. What do you mean by uh, scoops? Do you mean beat you to well, the chase? Yeah, they would publish it first, and we feel like mm. uh, we feel like uh, the Lord gave it to us, and uh, but but there's there's corroboration that has to take place. In other words, some of those samples right now are in a laboratory for further analysis, and once we get that uh, analysis report back, we'll know how to proceed. Uh, but these are very rare bones that we're talking about, and so. Uh, if you purchase them, they're very expensive, but then you kind of don't know where they came from. If you go dig them, it could take months to find them. So how, how much do... was it on you go? Sorry, I keep putting in because it's lag. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. Uh, we do. Uh, we did make a wonderful contact with uh, some researchers at the Oklahoma Museum of Natural History, and they are supplying us some of these very, very, very rare bones that we're getting these shocking well i'll just i'll just go ahead and tell you uh, when we work with these bones we put them in a weak acid uh, it's called edta it's a commercially available uh, compound and you soak them in there and it basically unbinds the calcium it's called decalcification so you're actually kind of releasing the calcium from the bone and it, and it kind of falls apart uh, but um Boy, I just had a senior moment and forgot where I was going. But essentially, okay, what you can edit that out. So what we are doing with these special bones is we're decalcifying them only to a point. We don't completely decalcify them because we want to see some of the bone. And the cool thing about it is once the bone shrinks a little bit, all of these tendons and nerves and veins and vessels are sticking up like a pin cushion. So... It is so dramatic, and so we're not disclosing exactly what these are yet, but we're hoping to get these images uh, back and the other analysis and post these things. So, no, we're, our plan is to continue. We, we, we feel that uh, we're making great strides and great success. We would love to eventually uh, have a brick-and-mortar laboratory, uh, multi-story, uh, with many different uh, avenues for investigation of dinosaur tissue. I mean, there's not just the tissues there. There's all the, mo the molecules, the proteins, the enzymes, all of the molecular work that can be done, particularly on the nerves. Uh, wow. So, no, we think that we're just scratching the surface. I want to go back to something you... Yeah, let me go back to something you said before I forget. Because you were talking about scientists finding all these soft tissues and ignoring it. And that's true. One of the labs that we actually purchase uh, prepared slides from tells us that they throw away anything that has soft tissue in it. They what? Throw, they, they throw Are it you out. serious? That's what they said. So it's almost Why? like they, they, they don't want to know that it's there. Do they think they're digging up like a, a dead dog or something like that? They made a mistake or... <laughs> No, a big dog. <laughs> no, they they know what they're collecting. Believe me, they they spend a great amount of time, energy, planning, and money to go to these digs and collect these specimens. But they bring them back to the lab. They find so much I have to, soft I, tissue. When I they, when I when I can travel, man, I'm coming to a dig and I'm making a <laughs> vlog on it. And I'm going to be yeah, with the camera and absolutely. dig this come, thing up. Come with us. Dig with us. We would love for this to be documented. Uh, you know, we're just this is making an amazing movie, man. An amazing. Plot. So this would be fantastic. Yeah, we think so great. too. So we're we're hoping that we have talked to some filmmakers and uh, they've been busy on other projects. But we do hope. Good. I know some filmmakers. And I'm going to send this to them once we do the podcast. So excellent. Yeah, and go to the YouTube channel Mark H Armitage and look at those videos because uh, they're stunning. You really can't believe your own. Look at the nerves. The Permian nerve video is going to blow you away. It's just. It's so amazing. You can't believe that it's actually there. Great. 
Well, Mark, I think I've covered everything I want to catch you from this this first interview. So um, unless you want to share anything else, um, please go ahead. Well, I would just ask for prayers uh, from your subscribers. Um, we're in a battle. We're in a we're in a spiritual battle. We're in a physical battle. We're up against uh, huge uh, organizations that are pumping out the evolution story, and uh, we want folks to know that the Earth is not old. That deep time doesn't exist. It's not necessary. And uh, all the evidence that we're finding, uh, direct evidence of an actual flood, is overwhelming. And, and we want to communicate this to as many people as possible. So the Lord says, pray to the Lord of the harvest for workers. So uh, if you feel like you could be a worker and help us, we'd love to have you join Distry. Thank you. Well, there you go, folks. If you want uh, an interesting YouTube channel to, to look at, including myself, I'm going to, I'm going to dig in into this guy's channel and find out what's going on because I mean I just I just love Jurassic Park, one of my favorite films of all time. So this is just like this is great news. So I, I'm uh by the way we got a couple of free books. You can download these from our website, Old Stretchy, the Dinosaur Bone Cell. And uh, we got a new book in preparation. Uh if you would like a uh printed copy, we do give away printed copies, just contact us through distry.org, dstri.org. Great. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Dr. Mark. And uh, thanks to everyone who watched the show today. See you thank guys you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. I want to thank Colin Heaton from Heaton Lewis Books for supporting the show. Colin is an author, historian, and consultant to the TV and film industry and has amazing wartime historical film production projects in process. I also want to thank Kevin and Sam Sorbo from Sorbo Studios for supporting the show. Sorbo Studios is producing some amazing family-friendly and faith-based movies with Kevin and Sam's decades-long experience in the industry. You can find out more at sorbostudios.com. I want to thank Colin Heaton from Heaton Lewis Books for supporting the show. Colin is an author, historian and consultant to the TV and film industry and has amazing wartime historical film production projects in process. I also want to thank Kevin and Sam Sorbo from Sorbo Studios for supporting the show. Sorbo Studios is producing some amazing family-friendly and faith-based movies with Kevin and Sam's decades-long experience in the industry. You can find out more at sorbostudios.com. Thanks for listening to The Nikos Show. I trust you enjoyed its content and were transported on an adventure. If you are a world-class expert in your field or you know one, please get in touch. I'm also looking for long-term partners to sponsor the show. Please share with your friends if you like this episode and please leave a rating and leave a review if you haven't done already. See you again soon. Nikos out. Bye-bye.